Welcome to the Echo Church Podcast. Echo is a group of people in Cincinnati, Ohio, who love Jesus, love hanging out, and are navigating the ups and downs of our faith together. We're glad you're here. We're now in our series called Journey of the Redeemed. It's a study in the book of Luke, and as we explore the life of Jesus, we also examine our own journeys shaped by him. Thank you guys for being here on this holiday weekend. Steve and Kaylin and I were traveling this past week, and we were in a very historic places, so it felt appropriate as we were approaching the 4th of July. And one of the places we went to, a U.S. landmark, Plymouth Rock. Now, I was told ahead of time, it's underwhelming. So we went in with zero expectations. It's a rock, guys. It's a rock. Okay, so... We weren't, like, planning some big trip to Plymouth Rock. We were in the area. Steve actually had a meeting with one of his clients who was in Plymouth. Their church is literally around the corner from the rock. So we're like, we'll see the rock while we're here. You can flash to our family reactions of the snarky, underwhelming feelings we had about the rock. So the funny thing is, besides it being a rock with a fence around it, it's also the history is a bit murky. Like, of all the historic places, it's a little less, less historic and more legend. So the deal is, there was no evidence in the original accounts when the pilgrims had their journals, and they're talking about coming in the New World, and they got off the Mayflower. There's no rock mentioned. They don't talk about the exact moment and step where they placed their feet. There was no big hurrah. They didn't adore the ground that they walked on. But 121 years after they landed, so you can see it was carved in. You don't have to leave our faces. You can go back to the rock. It was carved 1620 on it some years after it was created here, a little portico. But 121 years after they landed, there was a guy. His name was Thomas. And he said, you know, they wanted to do a building project. The city was like, we want to build a wharf. This is the land we want to build on. And he's like, wait, 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 wait. That's got historical significance. 121 years ago, that is the exact rock where they stepped. We have to preserve it. Now, that can be fact or fiction, right? Like, this is, there's no one left around to prove it. He was 94 by the time he said this. His parents weren't on the Mayflower, but they had been hearing the local stories. He was a historian, however, he did also really like the view, right? So maybe if it's historical, we don't have to build on it, which is fine. But it just, it became a legend, right? So now it's like, there's fortitude. There's determination of these people who came over to this country, and we're going to represent them by a rock. Feel the strength. Well, then everybody got really excited about this idea. They were inspired. In fact, they started to go, like, piece away and chip away. Everybody wanted a souvenir, so you chip away edge of the rock. So I think it started out much bigger than it is now. And then at one point in 1774, they tried to move the rock someplace more protective, and it broke in half. And they were like, this symbolizes America breaking away from Britain. Okay, it's broken, okay? So now there's pieces in other places, but we've got one piece still remaining. They had like a canopy over it, and I guess it wasn't like 
protective enough. So now, if you see the bottom picture, it's the only one up there that we didn't take ourselves. But they have this whole grand column-like structure. There's a gate. You know, you can look down onto it. People threw pennies on it. I'm like, it's not water. They threw pennies. I think there was a piece of gum down there. Like, it's not very well-respected landmark here. But that's, maybe other people had snarky feelings about it as well. Now, Plymouth Rock is not the only history that's been, you know, exaggerated. So looking at July 4, thinking about Independence Day tomorrow, I started reading and trying to remember, like, things. So here's the declaration. Can't really read it very well, but that is from the archives. Public domain photo of the actual declaration, original. Now, growing up, I imagine that July 4th is this beautiful special day because of the next painting. So see this painting here by artist John Trumbull. In 1876, he painted this. And it's hanging in the Capitol Rotunda in D.C. today. So therefore, people walk by and they're like, this is how it looked. This was great. Look, they're all gathered. Except, of course, there are some inaccuracies. Some people are there that weren't actually there. There's some people missing who were there. And you know, on July 4th, they didn't actually sign anything. Like, I had to kind of go back and be like, did I remember that and forget, or did I just learn it wrong? Like, on July 4th, that was the day it went to the printer. So that's the day they put at the top. However, it went to the printer that day, and it was accepted, but they didn't sign it until August, on August 2nd. The delegates came and began to sign, but some people were far away, so they, they showed up and signed when they could. The signing went on through November. Actually, the last guy, McLean, McKean, he signed it in 1870, or 1781. He was a little late to the party. So what happened on July 4th is that committee had been working through all the drafts, and they were like, Thomas Jefferson, you have really good penmanship. You write it out. Benjamin Franklin and John Adams took two full days from July 2nd to July 4th to put their final edits in before they were like, okay, on the 4th, we're sending it off. We like the final draft here. But for John Adams, July 2nd, that was the day. That was the day in his heart that he thought we should all celebrate because he said that was the day when the Continental Congress voted for independence. On July 2nd, John wrote this to his wife, Abigail. They voted and they said, yes, we are going to be independent, our own country. And he thought that's the day when we should celebrate. He said, the second day of July 1776 will be the most memorable epoca, epica, I don't know, in the history of America. I'm apt to believe that it will be celebrated by succeeding generations as the great anniversary festival. It ought to be commemorated. And so then, look, he goes on and says, pomp and parade and games, sports, guns, bells, bonfires, and illumination. So I guess that's where our fireworks came from. So that was his preference. Like, that's the actual Freedom Day. However, later, they said that a year from that date, they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, we've been a country for a year. Yeah, we kind of forgot our anniversary. Like, no one really cared in 1777. They just kind of forgot about it. I'm going to do this. We'll try that. Sorry. So no one really cared that first year. 
And at one point, they're like, we should pick a day. Like, we drafted it on this day. We started meeting in June. We signed in August. Where do we pick? And they're like, the 4th. It's printed on the thing. We should probably pick the 4th. So that became our holiday. I know real stories get an upsell. Do you have those friends who, like, tell you the stories, and every time they tell it, it gets bigger and bigger and more elaborate? I have a friend who lives up the street from here, and every story she tells is, like, insane. I'm like, either you do a lot of wild things, or you're a really great storyteller. I still can't figure out which is which. However, I get, I get a little miffed when I'm like, wait, did I learn the history wrong? Like, I, why, why did I care about a rock when I was a kid? Why did I care about Washington chopping down a cherry tree that never really happened because a writer wanted to make him look Like he had integrity, so he made up a story. Like he admitted it later. They made up that story. So I just, I'm fine with storytelling. I love stories. I watch movies. I read books. I watch TV. I get inspired, but just tell me it's fiction from the jump. Like I don't need to find out later. Like don't make up a fake story about a real person. Just make it all up about a character and I'll be fine. Just at least put, you know, like based on a true story. You know, they had to start tagging that on. Like, well, at least I know then you might have fudged some things and I would be okay. But I'm not motivated by, like, by like inspiring stories that didn't really happen. So today, I want to be clear. We're going to be reading stories that are fiction, totally made up. And you know who wrote them? Jesus. He's a storyteller. We know them as parables. But he did make up stories to, like, explain an abstract concept or just give them a visual of God's kingdom coming to earth. But he was just like, you know, hanging out, telling stories. But I think he let them know like this is a story. Now he did use characters and settings that were relatable to people. Like we have, we're going to see farmers and land and, and plants and animals and merchants and rich people and poor people. So like he tried to take the settings and scenarios they would be familiar with, but he made up stories and that's fun. It shows his creativity and he's trying to like make a point. So we, through these next two months, we're going to read a bunch of stories. We're at the end of Luke guys. We have been on a journey. I don't know if you've noticed. It's been almost a year journey of the redeemed. We've been in the book of Luke and I didn't know if I told you ahead of time it was going to be this long, but I hope you have enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it. But I was like, what should we do at the end of the summer, at the end of the whole book? Let's just put in all the stories, a summer of stories. And so these are going to be all the different parables we might've passed over on our way through the book of Luke. And we're going to dig in and see what they mean. We're calling this section crocus bloom, papyrus grow, not the font, because these phrases were all pulled from Isaiah 35, this whole series. And I thought these two phrases, they they reflect the plants and the seeds that we're going to hear a lot about in upcoming parables. But it also shows the growth, the vibrancy, like Jesus told stories because he wanted the people to grow, both now and in eternity. Today, no plants yet. We're going to talk about rich men. Rich men and their money and how they're parted from it. So let's begin in Luke chapter 12. We're going to be in both Luke 12 and Luke 16 today. Verse 13 begins. 
someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Now, this really happened. This conversation really did happen. And then Jesus is going to tell a parable in response to this. Last week, if you were with us, we talked about three different groups of what I like to label spiritual influencers who asked Jesus a bunch of questions. And this one kind of reminds me of that because the chief priests, teachers, and elders who are in that bottom circle, they were asking Jesus a question to try to frame him, but they used money as their topic. But Jesus switched it around and was like, don't worry about what you got in your pocket. What are you giving to God? So here, this guy is asking about inheritance. He's not even asking. He's like demanding that Jesus do something for him. Like not like who, who, who do you think you are? Um, He's like, do this for me, Jesus. And Jesus's response is what he really needs to hear, which is what is your perspective? Why are you worried about what you have? There was status that belonged with land. Like if this guy's splitting an inheritance, he's like, well, how much am I going to get versus you? Because this matters to me and my status in society. But Jesus, he tries to show that it's about God as a priority. And so here's the parable, his fictional story of the day to make his point. Jesus told him this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. There I will store my surplus grain. I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. Let's look at a few details of this parable. It said that this man had a lot of ground. Well, the actual word here in the original language, it wasn't, it wasn't the same word that they had been used before in this book about farms. This actually was about a bigger patch of ground, more like a district or a region. So like he owned like half the county. Imagine that, you know, like a lot, a lot of land. So yeah, that's, that's a lot of grain to grow, a lot to store. So was this man guilty? According to God's law, if he still tithed all that he had, and if he still left some grain in the fields for the people to glean, I don't know if you remember in the book of Ruth that we talked about last year, but when the harvest was gathered, they would intentionally leave some things out on the farms, in the fields, for those who didn't have enough to come through and to get what was left over so they could be fed. And that was God's law. That was what you were supposed to do as a landowner. You were supposed to provide for anyone in need. So if this guy was still doing that, then technically he wasn't breaking God's law. Technically. But was he greedy? Yeah, he was guilty there. Why did he need so much storage? Like if he had extra, fill the barns and then do something with the extra. He could have sold the grain for a decent price. 
Or he could have given it away. I'm sure there were still needy people among him. But the thing here is that his idea might have been, okay, everything looks good now. What if famine comes? Or what if there's a shortage? If I store it all, then I can sell it for a higher price later. Like that, that kind of piece is implied of what people might do. So the idea that he would be willing to tear down perfectly good barns would have been shocking to the people listening to this story. They were a society where they may have had two outfits. Two. You, get, you wear a rock garment, you clean the other, you rotate. That's all they had. They might have had enough funds for a week's worth of food, if that. Living week to week. When Jesus taught them to pray for their daily bread, it was quite literal. So that's the audience that's hearing this. So it's one thing to have like, wow, think of all this grain this guy owns. To be like, he's tearing down perfectly good things to build more. They're probably shocked. Like maybe angry. Like who does this guy think he is? And this man, you know, he thinks he has it all planned out. He has no, no control, no control over his own timeline, who lives, who dies, who tells your story. He's got no control over it. He's got today. And God said, guess what? You don't have a tomorrow. That was the message in the story. Somebody else got to come along. It, there might've been a greedy king in the region that just took over his land. Like that's some good land. If he dies, I get it. He had no control over what would happen. So Jesus' message, we can kind of see it pretty plainly in this parable. We can own things. Let's not let our things own us. That's kind of, that's kind of a summary here. Our stuff, when they guide our decisions, it's, it's just hard. There's always a, a boundary there. It doesn't matter how much we have. We, it's how much we treasure it, right? You can have a lot or a little, and you can still want to hold it. You can still want to not be able to share it. It's something, it doesn't matter. We can say, like, that person's richer than me, so I'm definitely not the rich man in this story. However, there's always someone who has less than us, so we're rich in someone's eyes. And I'll say, like, even just, like, going, traveling this week, you know, I'm like, oh, I had to worry about where did I lay down my phone? You know, this is now a priceless piece in my pocket. Like, that's stuff, and now I have to worry about it? Like, I can get way too concerned randomly. I've had stuff stolen from me before, and I started to, like, really be paranoid about where I leave things. And I realized it's like that's something I have to stop and let go of. Like, sometimes I worry too much about my stuff. And so I read this, and I'm like, I'm not, I'm not building a bigger barn, but maybe I'm thinking too much about my property Maybe I'm not leaving open hands. So this lesson, God's talking about physical resources here, but you have to imagine too, Jesus always had layers, right? He's telling a story here for the people, but those leaders who were listening in, because we always hear about there's those, those circle of leaders. They were always listening in. And maybe Jesus had a message to them. Because he kept critiquing the way they were holding God's law and holding God's kingdom out to others. And sometimes they were very, it's mine, it's Israel's. 
Nobody else needs this. Right? There was a spiritual resource that they were just really holding tight to. And when they could have done something with it, maybe, maybe there was another layer to his message. Let's jump chapters and go catch another story about another rich guy. Luke 16. There's also like a little clue that's kind of like when Jesus began, there was a rich man. We're always like warning signs. Like people are like, oh, that's the bad guy. So just letting you know. Jesus told his disciples this story. So this is Jesus talking to his followers. So it's a different audience now. It's not just the masses. Like he's looking at the people who are committed to him. So that's that's why I have to examine like what he meant with this one. He said there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So this guy was the owner. He had hired someone who was managing his stuff. He called the manager in and asked, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. Well, the manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called each one of his master's debtors, people that owed his master. And he asked the first person, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager said, quickly, sit down, take your bill and make it 450. Then the manager asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He said, go take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. This is a little less straightforward. It's kind of odd, right? The protagonist is an anti-hero, to be sure. But uh, it's not, not definitely... I don't think it's like step-by-step on like, here's what to do with your resources. You know, we have to look. It's a parable. It's supposed to symbolize things. So let's look at some details. The rich man, like we said, he's the owner. Now, some people would have hired people to, to, to do their property. And since we're looking at that people owed him olive oil and wheat, this is going to be a guy that maybe like, maybe he has tenants, people who rent out land from him. Or maybe he has neighbors who don't have as much and they've borrowed oil and wheat to take care of themselves and they owe it back to him. Notice that the rich man makes two mistakes. First, he believes the accusation without investigating, it seems. Like, people talk junk about each other all the time. Like, who knows? Maybe the accusation is true, maybe not. But he's just like, oh, this guy. The second problem is, He, like, told the guy he was going to fire him before he, like, finished the job. Don't do that as a a person in charge. Mischief can happen between this time and that time. So that's, that's a rich guy's mistake. Here's what the manager was probably doing in his whole, give me your bill, chop it down. So, in the Jewish law, they were told, if you lend someone money... You cannot charge interest. These are your fellow Jewish people. You don't charge each other interest. You care for them, right? Well, did you see what they owed him? They didn't owe him money. They owed him oil and wheat. 
So if you still want to be a devious person, you're like, well, I'm not charging interest on money, but you can give me some extra oil and extra wheat back when you pay me back. So what the manager was doing really was looking at the bill and he's saying, I'm cutting off the interest and you're just repaying what you actually borrowed. So on the one hand, the people are happy. Yeah, he should make friends out of this, right? He just like gave them a relief. Somebody wants to cut your debt. Would you not be excited about that? Whatever his motives, he blessed the people. But number two was, he really, he really didn't make the rich guy lose anything. He just didn't gain as much as he wanted to. So when the owner comes back, he's like, if I say it out loud, then he shows that he's being greedy, that he's the one being dishonest. If he's like, oh, you cut off the stuff I added on. So he's trying to say, face like, oh, you did. You're so smart. Yeah, thank you. Okay, good job. So in the end, I think he's like, well, you got me. Now I get paid back. You have friends. And we, then we, that just ends. That, that's what we got. The manager, he couldn't control his boss firing him, but he could control the resources at hand, right? It's like, hmm, we're learning from someone being dishonest here. But he was like, here's what I can control. Here's what I can do to make sure that in the future, I have people I can rely on. He couldn't rely on the people who accused him, but maybe he could make better friends in the future. And in the end, as we said, he still did something good out of bad motivation. So reading all of that, what's going on? Well, one of the theories behind this is, again, we know that Jesus has been warning people as we've been reading through Luke. What does he keep warning people about? Like, he tells his community, you're not always going to be able to control your future. You think losing a job is bad, but a few decades from him saying these words, Rome was going to destroy their place of worship. They were going to destroy their lives and press them down. And Jesus was trying to help them now, just live in this moment now presently well, because you don't know what your future holds and you can't control it. You control how you are. So we can look at the parable this way. The Jewish people can make friends outside the Jewish community. Isn't that what he kept like wanting them to do anyway? This guy was like, you make friends. They might've been your enemies once, but now's the time to make friends. And, and maybe the people of God, if they make friends, they have a place to land later. Another way it could be looked at is a veiled reference to the Pharisees. If you remember our circles again, those Pharisees, what did they love? They loved God's law, but they liked to add on extra rules to it just to make sure we're all set on how we should obey the laws exactly. So if we look at, look at what the manager cut off, right? There was, there was the thing, and then there was the interest. Maybe, one theologian surmised, maybe Jesus is like, hey, Pharisees, you've got God's law, and then you've got all this extra stuff you've added to it. You can trim a little bit. Maybe the point is to not be so focused on all the extra, but just get down to the heart of it and be a nation 
that's willing to make new friends, right? So those are interesting interpretations. And we can also see that Jesus followed up the parable with some direct words. He tells his followers, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. Whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? If you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. So Jesus saying, Look, there's, it's, it's easy to get caught up and value what the others around you value. But he's like, Go back to your values. What does God value? Not the things. Because that was a thing. It was like, well, we have land and we have stuff, and that means God loves us, right? That's the theology that some people still try to cling to, that if you have the things, then you must be blessed. And it's not that God doesn't give us good things. He's the giver of all good gifts. But it doesn't mean if you don't have things at time, if you're struggling, that doesn't mean God doesn't love you. God says that the poor would always be among them. There's always going to be poor and rich in the world because we live in a broken world. And so Jesus is like, don't just assume because you have the stuff that you're special and favored. But what if God's allowing them to have the stuff so they can give it to other people, so they can disperse it? Jesus is showing people what they can control. You can show where you place value and how you treat others. You can take resources And use it wisely for God's kingdom. So he's just like, here, let's do a heart check. And it's the same message as that first parable in this. When he looks at the Pharisees and is like, just check in. Check in where you value what, what you're doing with your priorities. Now, if you recall... Anytime we see these Pharisees, and it's like they're sneering at Jesus, like, they're the bad guys, boo. But Jesus is still in conversation with them, right? Like, he's saying hard words, but he's not stopped talking to them because he still cares what they decide. He still knows they have a chance to change their hearts. He does not give up on the fact that he wants everyone to be reconciled with God. So he has conversations with his followers, but he still looks over at these sneering guys and is like, still talking to you, still see you there. God still sees you too. So both of our fictional stories today, they were about, I just kept looking at that control, right? They were things under your control and the things out of our control. Story one, guy can't control his own life timeline. He's worried about his riches. Story two, the manager couldn't control other people's opinions at first. So then he tried to fix what he could control, right? So let's reconcile that with our opening, our holiday weekend and U.S. history, all that jazz. 
So for many people, they really liked these great stories about a rock and about the pristine signing of the Declaration, not all those drafts in between. You know, it was like covered over, right? And for the skeptical among us, maybe that's like, well, that doesn't inspire me because I know it was messier than that. It didn't look like a painting. And there was like some people you were damaging in the process, right? So we have to look and we think what's out of our control and what's under our control in our U.S. history, in our lives as a civic citizen. What we can't control is the history of America. Can't go back and change it. Or even how we were taught about it. What we learned and what we didn't learn and how it was told to us. What we can control is we can learn facts now. We can teach others. We can become involved. We can consider... Okay, what can I learn from all the mistakes they made and all the, there was some good things they could do too. And we have to grapple with that we've got some privileges out of it and we've gotten some pain. So then citizens of God's kingdom. Because if we're here and we're, we're seeking after Jesus, then that's what, that's what we are. We're invited into God's kingdom. So how do we act as citizens there? What can we control? What's out of our control? Well, like the first parable, we can't control our timeline. I don't know how much longer we have. But let's do what we can in the here and now. With our resources, with our time, with our care, with our attention and our skills. The guy was building barns and not paying attention to the people in his own community. So let's look around. Let's pay attention to the people in our families and in our church and our neighborhoods. There's people who need our care. So let's give it. Let's not be stingy with our time and our care. Let's give it. And like the second parable, we can't control everyone's opinions of us. Sure, we all know that full well. You could try. I try to Michael Scott it all the time. I want you to like me. Can't do it. People are going to have opinions. But what we can control is, okay, We can take the things entrusted to us and we can use them. We can make friends who are in our circles and who are outside of our circles, who are like us and unlike us, who believe everything we believe and who don't. We can make friends and care and we can use the resources at our hands to build bridges. And we can remember what we value most, not the stuff we can see, but the stuff internally the care and how people feel and act and think and were created in God's image. So every week we ask, we're just on a journey. We are trying to figure out how to live. What do we take from these stories? And let's just grapple with what's out of our control, what's under our control. I feel like there's less and less that I can control every day. (laughs) Maybe I'm just realizing it now. I thought I could control some things but I can't. Maybe you've had moments like that and it's frustrating or painful, but let's, it's this journey and we're not alone in it. And maybe if we just, just step into it with the purpose of like, what can we bring today that looks like God's kingdom on earth? 
There's a lot of people out there who've heard things about Jesus and they may have, the, the picture may have been painted all wrong. They might have been hearing exaggerated stories about Jesus. So that's what we've been going through and seeing what did Jesus actually say and do. And I hope that we're reminded of the truth and that we can whittle away all the extra, right? What's, what's true? And let's share that truth. Because there's a lot of people who label Jesus and Christians in a certain way. So let's, let's show them. Let's show them a way that we can live faithfully to a true Savior who invites everyone to join his kingdom. Everyone can say yes to that invitation. Every week, we remember the invitation to a table. We walk up to these tables here, and we eat bread, and we drink juice, and we remember that when Jesus invites us into a kingdom, he did so through sacrifice, and he did it for all of us. And he says, anyone who wants to come and join are welcome. And so we get to enact that. We all are welcome to these tables. And if you have questions about what does that mean to just say yes and to this invitation, just I hope you'll come to talk to to me or reach out to one of our church friends here and and find out more. But let's, let's close this time with a true picture of Jesus. Will you pray with me? God, thank you. Thank you for working through real things that happen, and thanks for telling some good stories. Jesus, thank you for helping us grasp the joy and the pain of our real lives and take a little break for story time every once in a while, too. We thank you for inviting us into your story. Thank you for putting yourself into our story. And we lift you up. And we hope to find your wisdom to share that with someone in the coming weeks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for the gift of your attention today. If you ever want to join Echo Church in person, we meet on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. You'll find us at 1301 East McMillan Street. That's in the Walnut Hills neighborhood of Cincinnati, Ohio, just up the street from our city's beautiful Eden Park. Find out more about us on our website, echochurch.org. Have a great week.